This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State revenues aren't spectacular this year, but the picture is not as bleak as some would paint it, according to Governor John Hickenlooper. In our regular conversation at the Capitol, we talk about the budget, the promise of Cuba, and his role as a superdelegate in the Democratic Party. A little later, we'll find out what energized him and his staff so much that they stood up and applauded. Governor, thanks for joining us again. Glad to be back. The state could slip into recession, according to a legislative analysis out last week. Declines in the oil and gas industry and problems with the global economy were cited as reasons. Colorado's had a very strong economy over the past several years, better than most states. How do you assess the risk of a recession and is it something you're preparing for? I mean, I'm a very optimistic person, but I am always trying to make make sure that we are prepared for whatever unforeseen circumstances could take place. So we've been building the reserve for the state so that if we do have a slippage, we're better prepared. I look at their their predictions, though, and I'm not sure I agree. So they're looking at the drop in employment to the, the low price of oil. Well, the price of oil has already come back. We can't guarantee whether it's going to go up or down, but it's very unlikely we're going to see a lot more job loss. Same thing with the global economy. My sense is that in a lot of in India and China, they are beginning to try and ramp up their investment in infrastructure and, and their economy. And I think that will have a net benefit on the global economy. But again, we're, we're being very conservative in preparing for the worst. There is some potential of dipping into reserves uh, in the coming budget, is there not? There is always a potential. Again, the legislature makes these decisions, but I'm not sure we have to go in the reserves this year. We're not in a recession at this point. Uh, the reserves we should save for when, when we really need them. Another budget milestone comes Monday when lawmakers are expected to unveil their proposed budget, which will then get fine-tuned. Last fall, you predicted the state would have to make $373 million worth of cuts to higher education and hospitals, among other things, to balance the budget. Uh, That number has gone down some because the state hasn't spent as much as it anticipated on schools and prisons, but the state still expects to make cuts in the current fiscal year and the next one. Where do you think lawmakers could afford to cut back or where would it be most appropriate to cut back? Well, what we tried to do in our budget was was make sure that there were cuts across the board and that everybody felt the pain. And yet whatever we were cutting, we weren't going, you know, through the muscle into the bone. Is that always possible? I, I think at this point, it, it, I think it is possible because the challenges that the budget presents us with aren't insurmountable. Uh, what muscle have you avoided cutting? <laughs> well, I don't know what muscle. Be, but you're, you're taking my own metaphor. Well, in, in your own me. budget plan, for instance, you asked for additional money, uh, despite potential cuts, to go towards child welfare workers, youth corrections, a program that gives free birth control to low-income women. Do you see those as muscle, and will those not only be spared from cuts, but do you think that additional money could flow to them? Well, I think those are three examples of, of commitments we made in previous years towards resolving certain challenges that we faced in our system. Uh, and I think I am going to lobby hard that those increases are, are preserved. Again, this is a debate and really it's a negotiation uh, between the, our office and the legislature. And I think there'll be a give and take on both sides. Are any of those, so among child welfare workers, youth corrections, that birth control program, or I suppose some other aspect of the budget, a must for you to sign? Well, I think that they're all important. We were able to cut teenage pregnancy by 42%, cut uh, abortion rates in young women by uh, 35%. 
those are results that really beg for additional investment. Is it a must? I guess it's not a must. We can negotiate everything, but that's important stuff. You talk about making cuts across the board so that uh, everything in the budget feels it. When it comes to making cuts, uh, Republicans went into this session saying that there was room to shrink Medicaid, which has expanded over the years in this state. Do you agree? I think it's very difficult to constrict Medicaid because the people you're affecting are the last and the least, generally elderly, often people with uh, disabilities of some sort, or kids. The argument from some in the GOP is that there are people drawing Medicaid benefits who could buy insurance on the exchange. And certainly we share that with the GOP, that we, we want to make sure that the people who are on Medicaid really don't have other choices. Do you have a sense of what those numbers might be? I don't uh, think they're anywhere close to what cuts were considering to the budget. Given the less-than-stellar budget picture, um, there will not be rebates to citizens under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights this year, at least according to the latest forecast. And you said Thursday in a press conference that this diminished the urgency and the critical nature of a plan that you've been pushing since last year. This has to do with something called the hospital provider fee, which you'd like to take out from under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights cap. This was nearly $700 million last year that was paid by hospitals. Will you continue this fight this year, uh, given, as you say, that the urgency has been lessened? Well, just because the urgency has been lessened doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think especially now when there's, we're in a situation where the economy has slowed down to the point where we're not going to have rebates, that's a good time to fix it because you're not taking things away from people. And let me say that you say this fix would free up more money, particularly for roads and for schools. Senate Republicans oppose this change. And with what you would describe now as reduced urgency, is, is this the year it gets done? Yeah, I think that we've put the, the argument out there with, with a great deal of clarity. And there was a lot of concern in the beginning that it was unconstitutional. Well, now we have the Attorney General of the state of Colorado and the previous Attorney General both say it's perfectly constitutional. So that doesn't work. But legislative Republicans don't seem to be swayed. About the constitutionality? About whether to take the hospital provider. No, no, I, 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 they, they've come up with other uh, reasons why they are resistant. Can I guarantee it's going to get done? No. And, and we're trying to figure out a way that we can find a compromise so that the Republican side of the argument doesn't feel that they're taking all the burden. It shouldn't be a question of one side winning or the other. Anyone who's been caught in transportation gridlock, right, trying to drive up to Fort Collins during the day or just get to work, it seems like the traffic's getting worse every month. And it doesn't magically resolve itself. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Democratic Governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. A bit of foreign policy now. U.S. relations with Cuba are opening up. The president, of course, was in Havana earlier this week. Colorado-based Frontier Airlines has applied with the federal government to operate commercial flights to the island. Are you lobbying for Frontier's application, and are you looking to Cuba for other business opportunities? Well, they haven't asked me to lobby, but I, I certainly support their, their application, and I think that there are companies in Colorado that could actually do business and be successful in Cuba. Give me an example. Oh. Maybe one you've spoken with. So Teletech is one of the largest call center companies in the world. They, they really, as we know call centers, they helped invent it. They do a lot of work in Latin America. If there were sufficient broadband capacity and telecommunications infrastructure, a call center in Cuba 
I mean, their education, they have a lot of educated people who don't have very many job opportunities. Their education would be of immediate value. Uh, they would be a lower cost alternative and probably a higher quality alternative than uh, call centers in other parts of Latin America. So, I mean, that's one possibility. You'd have to go, you know, talk to the CEO and see what they think. But So you wouldn't see that as outsourcing U.S. jobs, but a shift of those call centers that are already abroad? Yeah, okay. I, exactly. I don't see that as any kind of an outsourcing. And have you been to Havana? Do you plan to go? Uh, I have not been, but anyone who's read Ernest Hemingway or seen the you know, the old Humphrey Bogart movies, Key Largo, all these things. I looked at my calendar, and at least in the next 12 months, I don't see an opportunity for me to get there. But at some point, I would love just to experience the old Cuba before it becomes modernized. Well, a little of Cuba could come here. President Obama would still like to close (laughs) the prison at Guantanamo Bay before leaving office next January. And the high-security prison in Florence, Colorado, is one of several facilities the administration has considered to house detainees if he's able to bring them to the U.S. Uh, Congress, though, would likely have to change the law for that to happen. Uh, do, you, do you want that relocation to happen? And do you want it to come to Colorado? Well, I think it's a moot point at this point. I don't think it's going to come. I know that Senator Bennett has been strongly against it. Senator Gardner has been strongly against it. Do you share their, their outlook? Well, I, I haven't had a chance to go down and talk to the people in that part of the community. Certainly, if the community feels strongly that they don't want those individuals anywhere near their community, then I would support 100%. And that's, I think, from what I've heard from Senator Gardner and Senator Bennett, that is what the sentiment is, is of those communities. So I, if that were the case, then I absolutely support that sentiment. Is it a sentiment, do you think, that is based on on realized or realizable fears that that could make Colorado something of a terrorist target? Or is that just not in my backyard? Oh, I'm sure it's, it's, it's both. I don't see, from what I've been able to gather, you know, these people don't seem to be more of a threat than the people that we already have. But I think that, that you have to recognize, you know, public sentiment matters. And if people are that fearful... You've got to go have that discussion and, and listen to them. And, you know, sometimes they have reasons for their fears that aren't what gets reported, aren't what we think. I, I wouldn't want to make a, a, an editorial judgment about the, whether their fears are justified without talking to them. Has the president reached out to you directly on this issue? No, he has not. Do you wish he had? <laughs> no. Yeah. He hasn't said he's, sending, he's, he's trying to send the, the detainees to Colorado, so why would he? He's a busy guy. He's not going to be able to call each of the, you know, they're probably looking at 12 or 14 states, and my guess is that if they narrow it down to one or two states, they will call those governors and, and have the, what will most, most certainly be a quite a difficult discussion, I'm going to guess. Well, to the U.S. presidential election, you are one of Colorado's 12 superdelegates to the Democratic National Convention. How did that convention. happen? Who set, who set up that system? Do you, <laughs> do you dislike the superdelegate system, which has come under uh, real fire, especially here in Colorado, because uh, Senator Bernie Sanders won an overwhelming victory here in the caucuses, picking up nearly 20% more support than Hillary Clinton and the superdelegates, we should say, are mostly pledged to Secretary Clinton. Would you rather not be a superdelegate? No, no. I, I, I think the point of superdelegates is that they're more likely to have met all the candidates. And I don't know Bernie Sanders. I have not had a chance to sit down and really talk to him. But I have had a number of times over the last 10 years, I have had the opportunity to talk to uh, Secretary Clinton. And you've endorsed her. Let me get to a more fundamental point, which is that there are Coloradans who say... You ought to reflect the will of the voters here. 
so that because Bernie Sanders prevailed in the caucuses here, you ought to switch your allegiance to reflect the popular will. What do you say to that? Well, the will of the voters was elected me. You know, the voters elected me to use my judgment to make decisions. And this is one of those places where the system is designed that I use my judgment to decide. So I I understand the argument, uh, but I I disagree with the conclusion just because it's intended that folks like myself who got elected, that we should use our judgment. And that our judgment, I think it was accepted that, that our judgment might differ from the, uh, the voice of the, you know, the larger electorate. If Senator Sanders closes the gap with Clinton in earned delegates, would you take a second look at whom you're supporting? From what I've seen, and I really appreciate what Senator Sanders, the, the amount of work he's put into it and the ele- energy and enthusiasm he has created all across the country. And I certainly sit down and talk to him. I think I would owe, if, I, if that was possible. And again, he's so busy, it's, it's probably unlikely. Have you made the request? No, because oh. it's not gotten to that point. Okay. Right? Again, he's too busy. But it's hard for me to imagine changing, right? I, I, I know Hillary Clinton. I, I think she is someone who is gifted at being able to bring people together, create compromise. I really, I can't imagine changing where I stand. Colorado Governor and Democratic Superdelegate John Hickenlooper is my guest. We speak regularly at the state capitol. And when we come back, a question from a listener about the governor's commitment to fighting climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's rejoin my regular conversation with Democratic Governor of Colorado John Hickenlooper. We spoke Thursday afternoon at the state capitol. I want to bring in a question from a listener now. This is about your commitment to fighting climate change. Larry Milosevic of Lafayette asks about the state's requirement that a certain percentage of energy come from renewables. So in 2004, voters decided that it should be 10 percent by 2020. Before you took office, that got bumped up to 30 percent for investor-owned utilities. Milosevic says that made Colorado a leader nationally, but quoting here now, we have since fallen behind several other states. Isn't it time we sent signals that we're still serious about moving forward on clean energy beyond 2020? He asked, would you be willing to pursue an updated renewable energy standard equal to that approved by New York and California, namely 50% renewables by 2030? So I certainly wouldn't do it without sitting down and seeing what it would cost, you know, what our citizens would have to pay for their electricity. It goes to prove that you could, you're never going to satisfy everybody. But we have been one of the more aggressive states of saying, you know, we don't care what the Supreme Court says about the Clean Power Plan. We recognize we want to have the cleanest air possible. I think we need to look at, you know, what are our core values? We want the cleanest energy we can have reduce our carbon emissions in every way possible, but we want to do so in such a way that that saves money. Well, it might well be, certainly in the next couple of years, that we're looking at these large-scale industrial solar plants. They're saying they might come in lower than natural gas plants. But it sounds like you think the market might drive it from here, as opposed to the state upping its renewable energy standard. Would that be a fair assessment? No, I think the market helps uh, nudge the universe from time to time. Uh, but I don't think we would leave it completely. I mean, we've never left it to a completely a market-driven decision. Uh, would you like to see a, a higher renewable energy standard in Colorado? Do you think it should grow from where it is? Well, I think, again, as I said, I think it depends on exactly what the cost would be and what that looks like. But in an ideal world, if there was a way to do it for no cost, absolutely. 
Let's wrap up with your big announcement earlier this week that you're nominating Donna Lynn to be the new lieutenant governor. A little introduction. She's an executive at Kaiser Permanente, the HMO. Uh, Before that, she worked in the New York City government on labor relations and operations. Her list of affiliations is long, former chair of the Denver Metro Chamber, trustee at DU, board member for Teach for America Colorado, and the list goes on. You two also have a history. Uh, Lynn served on your transition team in 2010, supported you later in 2014 when you struck a compromise in the debate over oil and gas drilling near towns on the Front Range. Uh, How do you expect her to be of most help to your administration? Let me say that you're making her as well chief operating officer. Well, and I've been trying to find a chief operating officer for over a year now. Because I think in a big enterprise, we're a $27 billion a year enterprise. And, you know, any company that size has a chief operating officer, anybody. To whom you could delegate? Is that- Not just delegate, but someone who could focus on getting rid of the silos. I mean, when I first met Donna Lynn, uh, I think it was 2005, we had a difficult budget year when I was mayor of the city. And we were, you know, a number of our, our rec centers were going to look at raising their fees to the public. And she convinced Kaiser to come in and provide the money so that we made it free the whole summer. If you lived in Denver and you were a teenager, you could come in and use the rec centers for free. It was brilliant. She gets public policy, and she understands the importance and, you know, the lack of glamour. When you're in public service, you're not highly compensated, and people generally kind of put you down. She wants to change that. Can you give me an example of a silo that you'd like to break down? Oh, sure. I mean, we're working on it right now. But we have, if you look at public health, we deal with public health through HICPUF, our Medicaid agency, but also through the Office of Public Health and the Environment, also through Human Services, has a significant component of public health. Are we really doing everything to get those three agencies working together about public health? Are we doing enough to deal with rural health problems and challenges? And, and I, again, I think the, the real question, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but the question you should be asking is, you know, how did you convince her to come? What, what is it that, that got her to come work for the, the state? And the answer would be, it is her nobility. I mean, it's her big heart uh, and that she wants to make a difference. And I mean, I don't know how big her pay cut is, but it is enormous, right? Probably a 90% pay cut. You didn't talk about that with her? Uh, I did talk about it, but I didn't ask her how much she made. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure she was willing to take as big a cut as I had to, you know, as we had to propose. You say it's her big heart. It doesn't appear to be political ambition because she told reporters this week that she will not seek the governorship in 2018 when you leave office. She could be called on to take your place if you were offered perhaps a position in a Clinton administration. Uh, so though she may not aspire to higher office, uh, she certainly has to prepare for the eventuality of becoming governor. Uh, do you expect that she will get the job in well, any case? We certainly talked about it, and, and, and I don't think she will. I'm looking forward to having three great years. I think the most exciting thing for me about someone of the caliber of Donald in coming to work for the state is that when she came into our cabinet meeting and senior staff members, uh, there were probably 30 people there, on Wednesday morning before we made the announcement, she walked in and they gave her a standing ovation for five minutes. And so she is going to energize all of our senior staff. And I think we can say now that we're going to have these three last years, we're going to have a big agenda of what we want to get done. And I think we've got the horsepower. I, I need to put a finer point on this because I've seen conflicting things in the press. Are you saying then that you'd say no to a Clinton administration, to serve out the rest of your term. I think it's very hard for me to imagine any cabinet position. I know most of the cabinet members. Again, you never say never, but looking at how those jobs work and, and how much good you can really do. I mean, I gave the, the, a limited amount of public service, right, that 
I was going to spend 12 or 15 years in public service. I wanted to get the most done I can, and I think I can get more done here. So if Secretary Clinton was President-elect Clinton and wanted me in a cabinet position, it would be a, a difficult sell for her. Let me just put it that way. I would never say never, but I think it's very, very unlikely that I would go into the cabinet. And I think we're, we're, we're becoming a national model in so many ways that we can do more to help the country in Colorado than, than, than having me in Washington. Thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper joins us regularly at the state capitol. And coming up, we'll stay with politics and hear about a bill to ban conversion therapy for children, which tries to make them heterosexual. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Conversion therapy, which seeks to turn gay people straight, is widely seen as bunk science, yet it persists. The American Psychiatric Association declassified homosexuality as a mental disorder in the 70s, and the Psychological Association says these so-called therapies are, quote, based on a view of homosexuality that has been rejected by all the major mental health professions. This is in part why Denver Democrat Paul Rosenthal wants to make the practice illegal, at least for people People under 18. His bill has passed the House and heads to the Republican-controlled Senate, where it died last year. Rosenthal joins us, and so does Brad Allen of Denver, who underwent conversion therapy and testified in favor of this bill. And gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. So, Brad, tell us what led you to conversion therapy. So, I was raised in a very conservative Christian home, and when I finally came out to myself at about 18, um, <clears throat> the first thing I did was research kind of how to fix the problem, because it was, um, <laughs> the culture I was in kind of referred to homosexuality in that 1950s mentality that it's caused by an overbearing mother and all of that stuff. So I researched it and found Exodus International, and um, that's the Pray Away the Gay organization that closed its doors a few years ago because and apologized for hurting gay people. So I found them, and through that, the NARTH, um, which is the conversion therapy organization, and I read every book I could find. I went to um, conferences, and I ended up working for Exodus and then realized that this doesn't work. And so um, through a near-suicide attempt, I left that world and am now doing my best to try to stop it from hurting anybody else. You mentioned Exodus International. You also said that it's now defunct. And indeed, the founder actually apologized for the conversion therapy work that it did. Uh, that was covered by CNN, for instance, in 2013. Uh, what was the therapy like? What was it like to go through, Brad? So it's all based on a patho- a pathologizing of homosexuality. So the electroshock therapy and that sort of thing is hasn't been done for a long time, but there, it's basically where you look at your attractions to people of the same gender and then you begin to figure out what went wrong with that so that you can find the root cause of your homosexuality and then fix that root cause so that your true heterosexuality will come out. And I say that in quotes. Um, and so what it does is it truly internalizes the sense of toxicity and self-shame and you begin to truly see yourself as being disordered at the core part of yourself. And um, so a lot of the therapy that I went to was related to kind of looking at same-sex attractions is what they called it and trying to figure out what is causing that. So whether it's a lack of a male role model, like a father figure or lack of male friends um, that causes this me to have a disordered desire. 
And you mentioned that uh, you, you wanted to take your own life at one point. <clears throat> yes. So it led to, um, basically, I believed that my love was toxic at that point. And so I fell in love with a guy and realized that I was going to, the phrase is cannibalizing homosexuality, where it's that I feel a masculine void internally, so therefore I try to steal masculinity from another man, and that's what homosexuality is. Um, so I was afraid of hurting him because I had feelings for him. It's the first time I'd ever had truly romantic feelings for another man, and I was afraid of hurting him, so in order to save him from me, I decided to kill myself. And what prevented you from doing so? So the day before my plan was supposed to take place, I had a thought that came into my mind that saved my life, and the thought was, Brad, you are not toxic. And from that point on, I knew I was going to survive, and I came out to my pastor the next day, and I was told I can't take communion at the church, and where I was a pastor, I had been a pastor at that church for about four years, and then um, I told my therapist, and that effectively severed that relationship as well. And so I lost all the community I have, but it was the best decision I've ever made. Where do you think that voice came from that said you were all right? (laughs) Well, I'm a Christian, so I believe it came from God. Um, I know other people who've had similar experiences that are not Christians, and so that's why I used a more neutral term for it. But I believe that God saved my life, ultimately. Representative Rosenthal, what would your bill do in relation to the kind of conversion therapy that he went through? Uh, thanks, uh, Mark, for having us on the show. And I, I, I'm Ryan. Just oh, so you know. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, was, I apologize. No problem. Um, so, Ryan, what you heard from Brad is the fact that uh, this type of so-called therapy has very long-term effects and that we're talking about children here, uh, people under the age of 18 who are struggling with their sexuality and they need protection and they need protection of the state of Colorado in order to make sure that uh, a, a therapist is not trying to get them to be somebody they're not. Um, you, you mentioned the fact that the American Psychological Association has already come out against this uh, practice, um, that you said that uh, homosexuality is, uh, has been delisted as a mental uh, disorder. And so this is something that uh, we need to make sure as the state of Colorado that we are protecting these children. It's curious, given that the major institutions sort of governing the field of psychology and psychiatry, uh, given that they've said this is uh, not solid science, that the practice still goes on. How, how is that possible? Um, have, have you been able to answer that question? Well, uh, as you see, not just in Colorado, but uh, around the country, this is still a practice uh, because states haven't banned it. Um, this, you know, there's certainly advisories from the various uh, mental health professional associations saying, you know, there is no uh, scientific basis for it. This is not best practices. This is extremely harmful to children. So you shouldn't do it. Uh, but at the same time, this is up to the state of Colorado to ban the practice as it has for uh, other things, uh, particularly uh, we saw a few years ago, there was this uh, uh, one procedure, uh, sort of a rebirthing uh, procedure uh, that actually ended up with somebody dying uh, that was trying to uh, th- that sort of procedure was trying to help someone, but and yet it, it ended up killing them. Uh, so the state does have a precedent here to uh, ban this sort of practice. And other states have, have banned this practice, have they not? That is correct. Uh, so California and New Jersey 
have done so. Uh, and actually, they've gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and the U.S. Supreme Court has affirmed uh, that these laws are uh, OK and that they do not uh, violate any free speech. They do not violate anybody's freedom of religion. And uh, this bill would not uh, violate either one of those as well. I'd like to listen to some of the testimony at the committee hearing about this. So a therapist named David Pickup testified against the bill. He practices in Los Angeles and Dallas, and he says that he represented himself and the National Task Force for Therapy Equality, which he co-founded. And he has been fighting similar legislation in other states. To tell boys, their parents, and their therapists that they cannot reduce or eliminate these unwanted sexual feelings because it is illegal will result in a rise of anxiety, depression, and suicidality in these boys. I've seen such cases. I'm a licensed psychotherapist in two states. Both of my therapy practices are composed almost entirely of adolescents and men who are undergoing authentic reparative therapy for unwanted homosexual feelings. When I say authentic, I do not mean the junk and horrors that previous testimonies claim, such as electroshock, lobotomy, aversion techniques, or non-therapeutic actions by Exodus International. I'd like both of your reactions to that. Brad Allen, um, what, what do you make of the notion that closing off this option to some will lead to the kind of depression and suicidality that you faced um, earlier in your life? Well, I think the, the fact that he's calling what he's doing therapy when it's based on a scientifically disproven fact that homosexuality is caused and is therefore fixable or that it's disordered um, ultimately leads to the same kind of damage that I experienced. And I was one of those people who had unwanted homosexuality, and I thought I was, I, for 12 years, tried to fix it. And it led to ultimately experiencing a deep divide inside myself that led to near suicide. So I think that what he's saying is, if you had talked to me at one point during that, I probably would have said something similar to him. But ultimately, I've experienced the long-term consequences of that, and it led to near suicide at 31. Mm. I apologize to listeners for the somewhat crackly phone line there. Representative, what's your reaction? Well, I think it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's the same thing. Uh, He's condemning something that he's actually also practicing, which is trying to convert a child from their true feelings uh, to be somebody that they're not. And I think that's what this bill would help remedy. Let's hear just a bit more testimony. This is from Bishop John Brannon of Living World Ministries International in Colorado Springs. I am really, really appalled that there's a bill before this state's legislator to remove the authority of a parent to get help for their child in any way, shape, and form. It is not the authority of a government to tell a parent they cannot get help for their child who is seeking help to determine whether or not if their feelings that they're feeling are appropriate or even accurate. Representative, you talked about this being upheld at the highest court in the land, but to to this notion of of a slippery slope that you are perhaps constricting a parent's ability to choose for their child. I I think that's a a very good point, very good question. And the, the issue here is what's in the best interest of the child and what's in the best interest of the child is what does a child truly feel? And you know, with all due respect, I think, you know, parents obviously have the best interest of their child at their heart, but they don't know how the child feels. And a, a therapist, 
uh, their sole job is to explore uh, with the child how the child feels in order so the child feels more comfortable with who they are so they can be a well-adjusted uh, adult. And I think what you see with Brad is the long-term effect that this kind of so-called therapy has. And so it has to be done right the first time yep. uh, Brad, when they're early on in their life. Brad, say more about the long-term effects and, and whether you, I don't know, on a daily basis still deal with the repercussions of what you went through? Absolutely, because um, it doesn't go away when you live 12 years of your life believing that you're intrinsically disordered. It still pops up in the most unwanted times, um, and it's something that I have to actively work with um, professionals now to sort of debunk what happened. And this idea that parents, um, I 100% agree, parents always have their generally have their kids' best interest at heart. And the difficulty is, is when it comes to homosexuality, that's um, such a laden issue in our country that often most of my gay friends don't have that experience of having supportive parents who understand what they're going through because they just never faced it or dealt with it themselves in their own lives. And so um, having parents choose this therapy for their children can be incredibly dangerous. And as I said, the long-term consequences continue to this day where I have to remind myself that it's okay that I love my boyfriend. When does that come up? Where, where, when is an instance when you've had to kind of tamp down that voice? <laughs> well, I go to a gay affirming church now, and I remember hearing a message from my pastor, and I had to remind myself that it was okay what she was saying to me, and that God can bless same-sex unions, and that I'm not intrinsically disordered. Because the funny thing is, I was in a space where I was hearing the messages that I truly needed to hear, but part of me still rejected it. I still had an aversion to what she was saying. Representative, has anything changed that makes you think the bill's odds are any better this year? As we said, it died in the Republican-controlled Senate last year, and it's there again. Well, I think what happens every year in the legislature, we have a new bill. It's a new year, and uh, people do change their minds uh, on any number of issues. Uh, but the language of the bill itself has not substantively changed. Uh, there is some uh, substantive change. Uh, some clear, I think some of the language is more clear. But at the same time, uh, it's a similar concept. And I think that the, what the Senate is now going to have to do is figure out, you know, it, has their mindset evolved? And uh, I think the country has evolved. Uh, we have seen with same-sex marriage and uh, the fact that the country has moved forward. It has moved on from uh, the days when gays and lesbians were treated uh, unequally. I understand that the president has hinted at uh, not at all supporting conversion therapy and that I suppose there's a question of whether this could come out on the national level in which states wouldn't have to act. Is that something that you've heard uh, any movement on? Well, I think ideally uh, the U.S. Congress would actually do something on this. Uh, they don't seem to be moving on too much. So I think it's left up to the states to really uh, go forward and really uh, act on something uh, such as so-called gay conversion therapy that's harming children. We heard there from State Representative Paul Rosenthal, a Denver Democrat, and Brad Allen of Denver, who went through conversion therapy. Still to come, Olympic swimmer Missy Franklin on why she doesn't envision gold or silver or bronze when she thinks of the Olympics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our next guest is a blast to listen to because she is always laughing. Swimming champion Missy Franklin is back home in Centennial, Colorado, training to qualify for the Olympics this summer in Rio. She was the darling of the 2012 Games when she captured four golds and a bronze. She has since gone pro and still laughs up a storm. I asked her what time she gets to the pool each morning. Normally, it's about 6 o'clock. I'm very much a morning person. Um, I like to really get up and, like, make breakfast, have coffee before I go to morning workout. So that way, when I get there, I'm super alert and awake. So I get up, and I'm just, like, ready to take on the day. (laughs) What is the can't-miss food that is your fuel for morning practice? So I'm actually a huge fan. Um, They're from Whole Foods. They're called Breakfast Rounds. Um, And they're these delicious little rounds that are whole grains. They've got protein fiber, and I'll put them in the toaster and put some almond butter on it. And that way I've got a really good mix of of carbs and protein heading into my workout. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like an endorsement. They aren't paying you, are they? (laughs) They're amazing. It's so bad how many I go through. (laughs) I see. But you're not an official spokesperson. I, uh, for the breakfast rounds, I am not. I okay. am not, but I am for Wheaties, which is super exciting. So, you know, I'm always going to have a bowl of that lying around, too. And, and, <laughs> and Speedo and Minute Maid, right? Yes, correct. Yes. Uh, I guess that means we're just going to see you everywhere leading up to the Summer Games. Pretty much. You guys are going to be incredibly sick of me, is what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, um, you're at home now um, and eating at home as well, as your dad joked recently, seven meals a day to fuel your training beyond breakfast. Oh, he over-exaggerates. Don't listen to him. I see. (laughs) Have have you made any big purchases uh, coming into, like, you know, the endorsement money? You know, I really haven't. I like to consider myself a very frugal person. I'd rather, like, take the money and go out to, like, a really nice dinner with family or friends. I think it's it's much better to spend something like that on, on something you can enjoy with other people. Okay, you're not driving a Bentley. I, <laughs> I, I got that, yes. So we, we, I moved to California um, for school. I did get a, a BMW. That was my, my post-London treat to myself, and that was probably definitely the biggest thing I've gotten. <laughs> uh, London, obviously, referring to the rather uh, glorious games you had, the oh, Olympics there. Thank you. <laughs> so you're about a year into your professional career. You turned pro after winning a national title at the University of California, Berkeley. How does the life of a professional athlete compare with what you expected of it? You know, it's it's pretty similar. Um, that was kind of the nice thing about our timeline is I really had some time to prepare for this. I had some time to talk to other teammates, to talk to coaches, to kind of get an understanding of what being a professional athlete was going to be like. And so it's been very much like what I expected. Um, tons of traveling. It's crazy. The airport is like my second home. I mean, certainly you were traveling a lot before. Um, what else? Yeah. What else changes? Well, you know, it's it's different kind of traveling now, especially this year, um, going into another Olympic Games. You know, this is the year that not only does your training really amp up, but so do all these obligations you have with your sponsors and with your endorsement deals. And so, you know, when I'm traveling, it's not just like hopping on a plane, going somewhere and coming back. There are eight to ten hour long production days of constant filming, shooting, all this stuff. I mean, it is work. And so to have to go and and then do training before all of that even begins and then do a day of that, 
you know, it's, it's, it's exhausting and trying to balance all of it. But having, you know, a good idea, my coach Todd is actually able to come with me for a lot of stuff, which really helps. So that way he can kind of assess how tired I am in the morning before he gives me a 6,000 yard workout. <laughs> and then you might go on to, you know, tape a Wheaties ad or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. If I could get on a Wheaties box, I would be pretty excited about it. Okay. <laughs> well, and I wonder if it's, you know, this new balancing in a in a pro career that explains maybe some of the situation in the pool this year. So you had five medals at World Championships in August last year, three golds, but none in the individual category. You know, that's not up to, I suppose, normal Missy standards. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it wasn't. Um, And it was definitely a little bit of disappointment, but I learned a lot from that meet. And and I really don't think that had anything to do with being a professional athlete. I actually suffered a pretty bad injury in 2014. um, And so I've been trying to kind of come back from that and really sort of make my way up from the bottom again, which has been an incredibly challenging journey, but also an incredibly rewarding one. So I know my body better now than I ever have, and I feel like I'm training better and that I'm stronger than I've ever been. So very good feelings moving forward. And uh, you did set a personal best time in the 400 freestyle. Uh, I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of kind of random. So we, I actually competed the week before that in Orlando, um, which went really well. So I swam a full meet there, flew from Orlando to L.A., did the USOC Media Summit on Monday, flew back to Fort Lauderdale Tuesday morning, and began competing on Thursday. Um, and this meet that we were at, it was um, sectionals. And so it was actually a little bit younger. And so we brought 30 people from our team. We ranged from 11 years old to 25. And so it was a much more relaxed meet than what I was used to. And we were actually still training every single morning. So the fact that I was able to go best time was uh, pretty exciting. I was not expecting it. (laughs) You have set a a long-term goal to become the most decorated female swimmer ever. And you hope to compete in seven events in Rio. Uh, though, of course, there are trials until then. What are your goals in Brazil? I mean, do you, do you set like medal or time records in particular? Yeah, so, well, we actually haven't decided how many events I'm going to be swimming in Rio. I did seven in London, but um, we haven't announced our schedule going into the summer. Um, my coach and I kind of keeping that to ourselves and kind of figuring it out, taking it meet by meet, what's going to be best for me and how I can best help my team. But there's going into a meet, you know, I never, ever set a medal goal. I never go in there thinking I want to win this number of medals and I want them to be this color because in my mind, that's me basing my goals on other people. Um, I have no idea and I have no control over what my competitors are going to do. And that's not something I can be putting my energy and my focus into because if I have no control over it, that's wasted energy. And so going in there, hoping for a gold medal, like absolutely it's something I hope for. It's something I dream of. But that's not my goal. My goal is to be my best, and I go in there with times that I think I'm capable of achieving. And if that goal time is a gold medal, then that's great. If it's a silver, that's great. And if it's no medal at all, that's great. That's what I went in there to do. And and if that's my best, then that's all I can give. Yeah, that makes so much sense because, of course, time is a very intimate and personal goal as opposed to a medal, which is uh, uh, contextual. Um, Back in in high school in Aurora, you said your favorite athlete was Natalie Coughlin. You were Mm -hmm. You were her teammate four years ago, and you might compete side-by-side again this year. 
what have you learned from Natalie? And is it a bit strange being teamed up with your idol? Oh my gosh, yes. I, I've learned so much from Nat over the years. Um, that's one of my favorite things about this sport, um, is you go to a pro series and you have high school swimmers being able to watch and compete against the best in the world, against Natalie Coughlin, against Michael Phelps. It's it's like having a basketball tournament where, you know, you get a team out there and they're playing against Steph Curry. Like, it's just, that's what it's like for us. And that's why I think it's amazing that, you know, these young athletes have the opportunity to watch and race some of the greatest that have ever lived. And so I met Nat when I was 14, I think. It's incredible to me that one of my greatest idols is now also a true friend and someone that I can go to, someone who I can talk to and rely on. And and anytime I get to race her, it's just such a privilege, and it's a privilege even just watching her race. I want to get back to the games in Rio in just a second, but I'm curious about your schooling. So obviously you can't balance a full, you know, class load if you're maintaining the kind of schedule that you are. What are you you studying and what are your thoughts for graduation? So I am majoring in psychology um, with hopefully a minor in education, and I just love it. I am so passionate about it, and I'm such a dork. I love going to classes. I love everything. It's just, it's, I have so much fun with it all. Um, So I have two full years under my belt at Cal. Um, I've been kind of taking a scattering of online classes um, throughout this year, and I'll probably take the fall off as well just to kind of get reassorted back into Berkeley and give myself a little time off, a little bit of break that I I really haven't had the past 21 years. Um, So the nice thing is I know no matter what that I'm going to get my undergrad from Cal, and if it takes two years, two and a half, I'm, I'm not in a crazy rush to get it done. So I really just want to enjoy the experience of being a student there. What do you envision yourself doing uh, after swimming in terms of a career? Like, do you want to be a therapist? Do you want to work in a school? What? So I'm actually incredibly passionate about developmental psychology. Um, I love children. I'm going to do the same thing I've done my whole life, which is just follow my heart and follow my passion and see what that leads me to. And I know that even when I'm done swimming, I, I hopefully will never you know, be completely uninvolved with the sport. Um, I would love to do color commentating. I would love to be able to travel and and do meets and and do stuff like that, too. Let's wrap up with a a discussion of of Rio and the health concerns around those games. So you'll be in pool water, but uh, your fellow athletes who do everything from sailing to triathlon will be in water that is, uh, it appears, contaminated with sewage. Meanwhile, there's the Zika virus... Uh, does that does that stuff psych you out at all? It really doesn't. Um, you know, it, it's so hard for an athlete going into the games, and we're kind of hearing all this. And, you know, again, it goes back to what do we have control over? Um, and that's just something that we don't have control over. The games are still several months out. Um, I kind of feel like going into games, there's always different things that pop up that are going wrong or not going as planned. And, you know, if we let ourselves worry about that, we're taking away energy that we could be using to train and to really make sure that we're doing what we can do right now to make sure we're at our best when we get there. And so just going to kind of take it day by day, let everything play out as it does. And whenever we go places, USA Swimming always does an amazing job of making sure that we're safe and making sure that we know exactly what it is we're getting into. And I know that's going to be no different this time around. All right. Can I ask you about something totally not related to swimming? Uh, You can ask me whatever you would like. Okay. I read that you're a scrapbooker. 
Oh my gosh, I haven't done that in forever. Oh, okay. This is, we have old information. You're not scrapbooking anymore. Okay. <laughs> I'm a photo albumer. I I'm totally old school. I think photo albums are a totally lost art. And so I take a lot of time to like print out the photos from Walgreens, which actually is not expensive at all, and just getting big photo albums and putting them in there. It takes so little time and they're so fun to look back on. You're not a spokeswoman for uh, Walgreens, though, either. <laughs> no, but during this phone call, we figured two new sponsors yes, that yes. I can have. Breakfast rounds and Walgreens, so... <laughs> Missy Franklin, thanks for being with us. Bye, guys. Thank you. Missy Franklin is an Olympic swimmer from Centennial, south of Denver. Olympic trials are in June. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio.